Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio here with Candace Owens. She goes also under the name Red Pill Black. You can follow her on Twitter.com slash Red Pill Black. Facebook.com, I'm going to give you three guesses. Yes, that is correct. It's Red Pill Black. And Instagram.com forward slash Red Pill Black. Um, and I just wanted to say before we start, some of the funniest videos, bar none, uh, on the internet. We'll put a link to a couple below just for you to get a flavor uh, of uh, the woman's humor and brilliance. Candice, Thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely. I'm honored to be here. So for people who don't know you, and you know, it's funny because we all, in a sense, start as liberals, as socialists on the left. It is kind of the state of early childhood, you know, when you don't have it to is. work for your daily bread. And it is part of our general education in government schools paid by the state. Not very big on criticizing the state unless there's a Republican in power. But what was your journey? Because um, it's a pretty wide pendulum that you swung from where you started to where you are and who knows where you may end up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, uh, I had this very unique experience in high school um, that was categorized as a hate crime. Um, pretty much one night um, from school, I was sitting on my couch and I got three missed voicemails. And they were these really awful, awful, awful threats. It was four male voices on the line screaming, saying they were going to tar and feather my family, that they were going to put a bullet in the back of my head as they had done to Martin Luther King. Um you know, Rosa Parks has listed in like great detail all of these black people that had died traumatically and said they were going to kill me. Um, long story short, I only knew one person in the car that night. It was, a, it was a case of high school drinking and like, I don't like this girl. I'm going to call her and let's shout into the phone. Um, and the, the argument that I had with that friend was like, I was hanging out more with my boyfriend. It was something very, very petty and, and not a big deal, but ended up blowing up because one of the individuals in the car who I'd never met in my life was the current governor of Connecticut's son, um, Governor Daniel Malloy, who is a Democrat. Um, so instantly it was front page news. I went into school the next day, told the teacher, he was like, you have to tell the principal. The principal heard it and, you know, freaked out and called the cops. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm front page throughout Connecticut newspapers. And of course, we've got, um, you know, local chapters, not Black Lives Matter, but, you know, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jack, you know, we, they want to be there. They want to meet on the front steps and show, you know, the face of trauma for, you know, a black girl. They had never spoken to me prior, but they were outside with cameras in tow because it was an opportunity for them, um, to get their, you know, that's their whole stick, shtick. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was an incredibly crazy time and it shaped me early on and I was terrified sort of to be a person because I got stuck to this story of a victim of a hate crime and that wasn't really how I felt. I would have totally appreciated someone doing the old school, like kids need to apologize face to face. I, I'm a big person that believes that technology allows children to disengage in this way. If I tell you, Stefan, here's a cell phone, we're going to call somebody, scream and shout, especially when you're a child, you're trying out mean in general. You know what I mean? Like, how mean can I get? It's a lot easier to do it from behind a cell phone. It's a lot easier to do it after a couple of beers. And of course, opportunistic adults and politics. And we ended up in this huge situation that I think traumatically affects the lives of every single person that was involved in that. Well, it's um, funny too, sorry to interrupt, but uh, it just struck me, we can touch on this later, how um, boys who drunk dial, so to speak, are 100% responsible, but sometimes women who have drunk sex, well, that's a whole different matter. And yeah, I did, I don't want to get into the grim details, but I did read sort of some of the, the epithets and, and the arguments that were left on your voicemail. And I mean, it was almost satanic in terms of like every conceivable button that you could push to hurt someone, you know, based on race, based on gender, based on, you right. know, 
traumatic American history based on every volatile wound that you could jab your salty fingers into. They did. That to me is, it's kind of a, if there's one thing the internet and, and any kind of notoriety or fame teaches you is that there are some people out there who have like this laser scalpel rub right where the nerves are uh, ability. Right. If, if there was ever a temptation that I might succumb to, Lord knows there'd be more than one. Yeah. But it would be one of these, like I'm, I'm really bad at that. Like, like I've known some people in my life, they know what to say, but you're just like, oh, yeah. I didn't even feel the shiv go in and now it's coming out my back. And yeah, I think it's also that, a condition of adolescence, you know, like I think the worst people in the entire world are kids, you know, because they, they don't know yet. And you're learning that you can hurt somebody and then powered with a cell phone. It's different. You, you know, when you were in school and I was just at the, the tipping point is when Facebook first arrived on the scene when I was in high school. It's a different world now. For children well, you used to have to say it to their face. Yeah. And that's, and, a, little and that's a whole different world gotta, of of courage and you know yeah. then you better you better be be ready yeah. because i i'm terrible at that like i mean there are times when i'm like oh i'd really like to and then it's like i don't even know what's not an argument you know like, i don't yeah, know yeah. what to say to to really hurt people but there are people out there who have this incredible verbal sadism or verbal cruelty ability and they kind of sniff the weakness and know exactly where to go Right. And uh, that's one of the things I think that keeps a lot of good and healthy and powerful voices off the internet is just knowing that it's like falling asleep in the desert. You're going to wake up with some damn vulture <laughs> pucking at your eyeballs. Yeah, that is exactly right. Um, yeah, so it was it was a it was an experience, I would say, and something that I couldn't process when I was a child. But then when I became an adult, I was kind of like, you know, wait a second, like how do you brand one of the children in the car was fourteen? How do you brand a fourteen year old a racist? Right? You know, how do you? Nobody stopped to actually try to think about the conditions that set up children to do these sort of awful things. Uh, and I did when I kind of came out the other side, I went through a huge bout with anorexia and I kind of wanted to fly under the radar. I didn't want anyone to know who I was for a very long time. When I got to the other side, I felt very passionate about how the internet and technology affects children and being able to log on and read about yourself and knowing that, that, that it took me nearly six years to get over people who didn't know me just injecting their opinions about a situation. Like, you know, she must've done it for attention, you know, not knowing that my teacher went to the police. I didn't go to the police. Um, and that is how I, it brought me to social autopsy after spending, I was, I was in finance for four years working to pay back my student loans. And then I had this idea that I could sort of, create an anti-bullying platform with my experiences happening in high school in mind and with the idea that it was going to be something that ultimately would help children. Right. Naive. right. <laughs> and this this whole, I mean, we could probably do an entire other conversation about this, Candace, but this whole question of technology's influence on socialization, on empathy, on loneliness and so on, you know, because it's like everyone wants to document their lives, which makes some people people feel very much included and other people feel very much excluded. There are social evites and so on, which if you don't get one. And, and you know, now I've heard from some of uh, younger uh, friends that I have, you know, that, that socialization is often, well, now we're not looking at our cell phones in our own bedrooms. We're gathered around a living room all looking at our own <laughs> cell phones. Right. And I've heard stories of like one girl would literally text to another girl in the same room. That to yeah. me is completely bizarre. It happens. It, it really does happen. That's sort of where the world is heading. There's now people that have YouTube channels. Children watch children play other games on YouTube. <laughs> it's like, it, 
it's unbelievable. And they've got massive followings and these kids are getting paid to play games. So now it's like, forget going outside. Now you can log on a computer and watch what it looks like when a kid plays. I don't know. I mean, like, so, yeah, we're, we're definitely in an interesting time. And it was something that I was interested in. And I say somewhat naively because when I, again, when I stumbled upon like trying to solve the thing with the internet, I had no idea what an SJW was. Mm-hmm. Nothing about trolling. I was on Twitter and I accidentally landed myself in, you know, the middle of what was sort of one of these huge internet debates, which I, you know, I didn't know anything about, but was Gamergate. And well, and let's, let's jump into that in a second. But I mean, I, I sort of, I mean, I really want to empathize with this. And for other people, it's important to be prepared for this kind of stuff. Like I grew up in an environment where debates were king and, and crying was like, you know, there's, there are no cry. There's no crying in debates. If you cry, right. you lose. If you get too emotional, you lose. And it was sort of part of a strategy that you would try and sometimes uh, get someone riled up to make them look bad in a debate. But my friends and I debated uh, all the time and uh, within my family. And I don't remember a single friendship fundamentally ending because of a debate. There may have been different values and so on, which would cause people to drift apart, to deviate. But because of a debate, winning or losing, there was no uh, beginning or end of a friendship based upon that. And so right. because that was sort of my experience, and it's easy to mistake the internet for your social circle. It's easy, right. easy to think, well, this is just, you know, me it, 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 with a bunch of other keyboards or, or my friends. But it's not. It's like there's a whole different world out there when it comes to making public debates uh, particularly if it threatens people economic or, or potential uh, uh, political power or interest and so on. It's like, I'm going to go dance through the tulips and I'm going to give everyone my arguments. And it's like, hey, right. did I hear a click? And then boom, you know, like you're the shower of red mist. And it's like, it's really crazy out there when, and it took me a while to sort of adjust to this. You have to get that sort of uh, thick skin, what Tolstoy said, you know, like you have to, um, in order to survive it as a, in a public life, you have to let go of the lies that people tell about you. Right. And that transition from... You know, you grew up and you say, you know, your mom gave you lots of novels to read. I'm sure there was great conversations. Uh, I come from a very verbal family, as you can imagine. And it is very different out there when you come crashing into the sort of bladed language of of others and the hysterical overreaction. So with that sort of background, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the Gamergate phenomenon and how it uh, affected you. Honestly, so again, I built a platform for anti-bullying with children in mind, and I just thought that it wasn't about trying to strip anonymity on the internet. It was about assigning responsibility. So in my head, this is actually how naive my idea was. It was going to sort of be to start this in Connecticut, where I grew up, where this happened to me, where if you could say to children, like, what you see on the internet, and I'm talking about these children that get on and say, die, 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 kill yourself. This is why 11-year-olds are killing themselves over Snapchat. This didn't happen when I was growing up because Snapchat didn't exist when I was growing up. And homicides are down, but suicides are up among teenagers because everyone's staying home and getting traumatized by text. Right. Exactly. That is exactly right. So that was sort of what my concern was because what I went through was very suicidal. And that was before there was Snapchat and all these other um, avenues for children to get lost on. So I thought if we could assign a little bit of responsibility, you know, and say, you wrote this and something that kids really care about, like football and sports and things that actually matter, they'll start to just start to register that like the internet is real. It, it's not something that you can play with. And you're treating it, I guess, cell phones a little bit more of like a weapon at that age was what my big idea was. I put up a Kickstarter <laughs> to raise money for it and I created this video for it and I said one sentence and I'm convinced that this is the sentence that tripped everything off as I said, what we're doing is figuratively lifting the mask up off of trolls. 
Kickstarter was up for maybe 24 hours and I got contacted by a girl named Zoe Quinn who described herself proudly. And I knew that this is immediately would let me know that she wasn't a victim because she didn't know that she was speaking to a victim and victims don't wear it like a badge. You don't say I'm the victim of, you know, Gamergate, you know, trust me, I'll show you what the victims do. She calls me and she's very pompous and she explains to me that she was attacked by anonymous white men on the internet and that she wanted to help me out. I'm sorry. Just, just, just out of curiosity. I'm trying to put the circle of anonymous with the square of white men together. If they're truly anonymous, how does she exactly know their race again? But that, exactly. Gamergate was all about anonymous white gamers on the internet. This is right. the, what they did. But they, it was anonymous. No one ever got arrested, but they knew that these were white gamers. Who, who, who knows they're gamers? You know what I mean? That's so, right, because only, only white. I've never, I've never seen an East Asian on a video never game. It never that. happens. I've never seen any minority play a video never. game. So she explains <sighs> to me, and she's, she's like, I'm here to help you, and you need to pull your uh, Kickstarter ASAP or else. These, I already see it happening. She goes, you probably don't know about 4chan. I didn't. You probably don't know about this or that. But if you don't pull down your Kickstarter right now, these anonymous white males, they're going to, I already see them talking. I'm letting you know because I look at 4chan. They're going to come and they're going to attack you. And these are vicious Trump supporters, she says to me. So I speak to her. <laughs> and she, she, this is literally what she said to me. I speak to her and I say, you know what? I'm sorry that you went through that. Immediately, my bells were ringing. I knew that she, everything she was saying was it was just off. She was too proud to be a victim. And I said, but I'm not going to pull something that I just injected my personal funds into just to get it going, get the splash page up. And, you know, I'll deal with that tide when it comes, you know. And she grew hysterical. She started crying on the phone. And she said to me, if you don't take your Kickstarter down, and this was the sentence that I will never forget, it will ruin everything. And she hung up the phone. Like ruin everything. Ominous, ruin everything. What could it possibly ruin? Now, you would think as someone who was a victim of a, if she actually thought that I was creating a technology that was going to tell her who harassed her, she would want that technology. But she said to me, no, as a victim, I can tell you that once you get through it and you get through the harassment, you actually don't want to know who harassed you is what she was trying to explain to me. It made absolutely no sense. It was, it, was, it was borderline retarded. Honestly, the conversation was borderline retarded. She was telling me that even if I had created something that gave her the tools to figure out who ruined her life, she didn't want to know who ruined her life because she had empathy for them. She had developed a sympathy and empathy for them is what she explained to me on the phone. Wow. <laughs> pretty, um, pretty but but not for Trump supporters, apparently, who are just plain no. vicious. No, none no. of that. None of that. No. Now, no. that's interesting too because, of course, one of the great myths of internet abuse is that it's a male-perpetrated, male-dominated sphere. Some of the studies that I've read seems to suggest that it does tip a little bit more towards the fairer sex, so to speak, that there is a lot of uh, abuse, like who uses, uh, you know, the B word and the S word and the C word and so on. Those tend to be a little bit more of the female persuasion from what I've read. Have you seen those kinds of studies as well? I can just tell you because I experienced it. I haven't seen the studies. I haven't read the articles. I, I knew what she was selling me and I know what happened immediately after I refused to comply by her orders. And by the way, at this time, it's very important to mention, she was the head of Twitter's anti-harassment arm. They had verified, given her a check mark, and it said the official, it was called Crash Override Network, and the official anti-harassment arm of Twitter at this time is what she was promoting herself as. So imagine, I was essentially contacted by Twitter, okay, a, a girl that was the head of Crash Override Network, the anti-harassment chapter of Twitter, telling me to pull my Kickstarter or... I was going to be harassed. Pretty right. amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, and of course, the thing is, if she had some criticism about your methodology, she could have joined forces. She could have given you advice. You could have had a yep. discussion. Uh, and then, of course, the attacks 
did commence, if I remember rightly. Within two hours, we had not seen, received a single email, nothing had happened. I hung up the phone with her and just like she said, unbelievably, you know, everyone and amazingly, they kept picking these handles and these um, email addresses that were like, white guy for Trump, like these super <laughs> obvious, pathetically, like at least I, I, I require a little more intellect if you're going to try to game me. You know what I mean? This was so obvious. It was like, you know, another white man for Trump, like, uh, and it was nigger, 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 die, die, die. We're going to kill you. She told me they were going to dox me. I didn't know what dox meant. Um, uh, they sent me a map of my, my entire family down to like my 80 year old grandfather who lives in North Carolina. Um, and some people that weren't my family, poor people that just had the last name Owens that were <laughs> being docked on 4chan. Uh, and they, you know, if you don't take down this Kickstarter, they inundated the Kickstarter. That's how I was getting the emails. They inundated it with all of these threats, um, just telling me that they were going to kill me and they were going to kill my family. Um, a lot of racial epithets and a lot of the word Trump all over, you know, so it was supposed to be me going, oh, obviously Trump supporters are attacking me. Um, and she wanted me to go out and say, oh my God, this is happening. But instead I, um, I went on my Twitter at that point I had a following they were all starting to follow me on social media. And I was using this hashtag Gamergate because that's what she had told me about it. And I said, Zoe Quinn harassed herself. I mean, it's, it's open and shut. Obviously this girl calls me, she threatens me and, and I don't comply by her order. She says it's going to ruin everything. And then the next thing you know, I'm getting harassed. So it was her. Mm. Um, and me making that statement, I woke up and the Washington Post was trying to call me. Uh, the New York Mag- New York Magazine called me. I'm a girl who was a nobody who had a Kickstarter <laughs> up for 48 hours. Kickstarter pulls my campaign. No, they don't give me any reason. They say, you know, they were inundated with people saying that, it, you know, the same thing YouTube does. It's, it's against our guidelines. What guideline are we talking about for an anti-bullying startup? Could this possibly be against? And people were, they were trying to use the word pedophilia. So they started saying that uh, they were tweeting the FBI. She's creating something that's going to help pedophiles. Just imagine your name being even linked to something that dirty. But this is this is a liberal trick. This is what they do. Mm. You know, racism, sexism, pedophilia. This is how they try to take people down swiftly and aggressively um, by tying their names to something as impure and disgusting as that. Um, so imagine, you know, psycho- psychologically what that did to me, trying to create something that's going to help children now being accused of creating something that's going to help pedophiles. Um, and Kickstarter pulled it down and I was just like, what the heck just happened in 48 hours of trying to do a feel good passion project. And next came the media, the left media, uh, who I thought I could trust. And this is where, and enough with the amateur trolls, let's bring on the professionals. (laughs) Let's bring on the people that can actually write an article about you and ruin your entire life. Okay. Who can actually, because people don't know how to think for themselves. So if they write an article, this girl tried to help pedophiles. That's going to be taken. I'm going to stick with that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. Um, so yeah, I get contacted by uh, Jesse Single of New York Magazine, and he's like, "Yeah, I saw that you tweeted about you know Zoe Quinn harassing herself. I just wanted to talk to you on the phone. You know, he plays the nice guy." And I speak to him, and it seems to be a great conversation. The article yeah. he publishes could not be more opposite than what he and I had discussed. He is basically trying to gaslight me this was a girl who maybe was going to do a good thing, but then she fell down this myth of the Gamergate, the Gamergate conspiracy theory, you know, and Zoe Quinn is a girl that was really actually harassed and these terrible things happened for her and poor, you know, poor girl got lost and mixed up in this Gamergate thing. I'm like, I just open and shut, showed you the conversation, the screenshots, you know, of her contacting me on Twitter. And you're, you actually think that you're going to, you know, you're painting me out to be the crazy person. 
Right after him, uh, Caitlin Dewey of the Washington Post contacted me. But this time, you know, my spider senses were up. The Gamergate community was trying to help me. They were saying, don't trust. And they were listing, you know, Guardian. Guardian had contacted me. Don't trust the Washington Post. Don't trust, you know. And I'm now going, okay, I got to record this. So I recorded our conversation. And she does the same thing. But she was, like, nasty and aggressive. And she kept trying to get from me to understand who was funding us. She wanted information in terms of, you know, her job was clearly to cut off the funding of social autopsy because we had investors that were interested. And she was, you know, very smart and sort of nasty. And then one of the people that we had dealt with that was in the anti-bullying space gave me a heads up and called me and said, we, he was yelling at me at first. He thought that I had told Caitlin Dooley something that I had never told her. Um, so he called to yell at me and say, why are you saying that we're funding you? And I said, I never said that. I have the full recorded conversation. And then he said to me, my suggestion to you is that you lawyer up. Um, because they are coming for you. And because he tipped me off, I was able to contact the Washington Post and threaten to sue them with the audio of the fact that she had lied with the emails and I caught them and they pulled the article. So they never ran it. Um, but they were, they were going to paint me out to be a liar. And just imagine if you're trying to fund something and someone does a Google search and they see all of these things that say, you know, she lied, she's helping pedophiles. That is what they were trying to do to cut off the funding of social autopsy so I could never create the product which was going to harm them. And it's because they thought that I was going to be able to unmask anonymity and they had a lot to lose. I will guarantee you during the Hillary Clinton's election, just imagine how many of those accounts are fake, how many followers are fake, how many people that are on the internet saying nigger, 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 die that work for the Washington Post or Twitter. You know, that was the threat that I un unintentionally stumbled upon. Well, it's funny, you know, it can take you a, a decade and a half to become a good surgeon, but you can become, you can get a PhD in media relations in one hysterical day, right? <laughs> or it's just, especially if you've got people around you who've seen that route before and who have some, you know, bodies and scars to show what, where it leads and so on. So at least you had that kind of backup, but that's fascinating. So if you had been able to unmask some of the trolls and if some of the trolls had been, you know, and I hate to use these overused words on the internet, shill, disinfo agent, uh, or double agent, so to speak, or people who are out there creating a narrative that helps them sell papers at the expense of, say, basic gender and race relations, then that might have, and of course, if some of it was tied into the Hillary Clamp campaign, that would have oh, been quite a story. And, and of course, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the, the, the mainstream media would never have run that story, but because there's the alternative media, now they have to be much more proactive. They could just bury stuff in the past and nobody would ever know about it. You know, some right. guy with a smudged photocopy Mel Gibson style would be ranting on the corner with a full beard down to his Gandalf belt, but you would never hear about it. But now, of course, there is this alternative way of getting information out. So they can't just be as passive as burying stories. Now they actually have to go and, and hunt them down sometimes. Right. And so for me, the, the first thing that I thought, the first name that came to my mind when this was all, as, as I was falling down the rabbit hole, was Jeff Bezos. I had Twitter contacting me, right? He's one of the first investors in Twitter. He's running, you know, running Twitter. I had um, the Washington Post contacting me, which he's running the Washington Post, and he did run it as an anti-Trump, you know, everything to protect Hillary. That is why he purchased the Washington Post. Um, and he also runs Amazon, which now I no longer trust those product reviews. I'm like, oh, this is what anonymity affords you. He's figured out how to tap into anti-marketing. He's running a massive anti-marketing project where he can build people up or he can take them down. Um, and, and and anonymous trolling allows him to be able to do that. So it was the first thing that came to my mind. And I tweeted a little bit about that, that this just is all this all adds up and it, it all it stank really, really bad. And um, the reason why I think they came for me so swiftly is this was in April, right before the election. And just imagine if this had blown out of proportion, I had actually created technology and I said, hey, 
those uh, 10 accounts that have been um, inspiring black people to do this and that, those are actually being run by, you know, white girls at Twitter that are saying the N word behind closed, you know, behind closed doors. And yeah, it, it, it was vicious and it was disgusting. And it was a terrifying thing to go through, to have mm-hmm. your name dragged through the mud. I don't ha- I have the money. I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't save myself. I'm not like, you know, Milo was able to bounce back from this because he's got a little bit of money. He had the followers. There was nothing I could do. They took out a private citizen. Well, and, and I can't help but think that if you weren't black, if you weren't female, that it may have gone a bit of a different route because, again, there is this unique threat from uh, blacks or, or others who aren't on the left. Right. Because there yep. is this sort of group think that, that goes on that, you know, if you're a minority or whatever, and I even hate to use that term because we're all a majority of one within our own skin. But, you know, let's just sort of use the, the convenient terms. But uh, if you are a minority, of course, the cliche is that you're victimized by horrible whites, usually males. Uh, and, right. and therefore, you need the Democrats to stand up for you and save, save you from you. this terrible racism and sexism. And I, I tell you, I mean, you, I've seen a lot of viciousness in my life, particularly as a public figure. But the people I see the most viciousness uh, is is black conservatives, uh, uh, people who aren't on the left who traditionally right. should be because they're kind of breaking a narrative. And people who have particularly uh, achieved great success, and I would like to hear a little bit more about your background for people who aren't aware. I mean, you're supposed to be attractive and so on, and then people don't know where you came from. If you've managed to break through a particular kind of ceiling, that's blazing a trail that other people could follow, which goes right. against the you know massive white snowbank of, of privilege you can't ever burrow through. Right. So that I think, you know, your, your race and your gender in particular, I think, gave you a, a lot of lasers on your forehead that otherwise may not have been. If you'd have been a white male, they could have right. just discounted you just, more he's easily. White, yeah, he's a, he's a white nationalist. They had trouble. They had tr- the, the press had trouble saying something that would get me dismissed that easily. They couldn't say, you know, I'm a woman. I'm at the top of the progressive stack. So everything that they lie about is that everything the Washington Post writes about is because they're doing it for a woman. Women are being harassed on the internet. Well, I'm a woman telling me that a woman harassed me on the internet. Okay. So what are you going to do? Oh, she got, she got confused. You know, you're going to gaslight me. You know, she got sucked into a conspiracy theory. No, I'm telling you that this girl picked up the phone and she called me and she threatened me. And they were trying to bury that very quickly because at the end of the day, Zoe Quinn, she is a, a white girl. She, I'm, I'm one step a tier above, you know, on the progressive stack. And I'm telling you that this is what happened and it's factual. And I had the documentation to back it up that she called me from this, you know, crazy number and they wouldn't run the story as I was telling them it. They, they needed to stick to, their lie they had already been telling for years, which I didn't know, which was the Gamergate lie, um, which propelled all of these women who did not get harassed on the internet um, to fame and get, you know, they are being funded. They're at the UN asking for absurd things like, I, I don't know, people were telling me that they were both able to speak at the UN, her and Anisa Sarkeesian. And I'm here to say, and I will always say it, these girls were never harassed on the internet by men. They harassed themselves. Hmm. That's astounding. So let's talk a little bit about where you came from. I was uh, really quite moved in, in hearing about some of the struggles within your family members, particularly the men uh, when you were growing up. So what was the kind of image that you had of your potential or your neighborhood potential when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, so I, this is, I, I love to talk about this because people assume that I come from like some wealthy um, Republican black family. Me, me too. Be, Not to right? like think so much. But no, honestly, people, oh, they think I was born with a silver. I come from a welfare household. I mean, yeah. I grew up in, in sort yeah. of the white project, so to speak. Yeah, so exactly. yeah, I mean, it is one of these, oh, you're accomplished. Well, you must have yeah. come from money. Which yeah. is sad. Yeah, it's sad. No, I just, again, my mother was very crazy about me reading from the time I was a very little um 
four years old, I just remember we'd go to the library, we'd pick up books, and I would just want to read a bigger book, a bigger book, and a bigger book. And I thank God that that was one thing that she um, really placed on me. But we grew up in the hood. Me and my sisters, the three of us. And she wasn't room. particularly educated, if I remember right. No, my mom didn't even graduate high school. Right. Um, right. So uh, she's one of nine. She was in and out of group homes growing up. Uh, she, yeah, all, all of her brothers and sisters have, not her sisters, but the brothers had been to prison. I visited my uncle in prison growing up. I've got uh, a lot of addiction in my family. I have uncles that live on the street. I have uncles that don't know they're my uncles because they have mental disorders um, and they're in homes now. And this was just sort of my childhood growing up, uh, especially on my mom's side of the family. My dad's side was a little more middle class. My grandfather worked really hard. He grew up on a sharecropping farm and he instilled very Southern values, like, you know, no elbows on the table, <laughs> uh, very respectful, big Southern breakfasts. When I turned eight, my grandfather took us out of the hood and moved us into his middle class house. So I got to live um, you know, in a better neighborhood than I had initially come up in for about five years before we moved back into the hood. Um, but yeah, my, I have a typical black story. There's nothing special about me other than the fact that, um, I've always wanted more. I've just, I've, I've never seen myself getting, you know, involved in that. I was fortunate in that because I read so much, I placed very high on my test scores and I was put into higher classes. And because of that, I had all white classmates, sadly. Mm. Um, but that earned me the whole, you're acting white, which is, don't get me started on that, you know, the whole, well, you got to be one of us. If you hang out with white people, then you're you're not one of us. And I was bullied by black girls, pushed into lockers because I didn't speak like them because I wasn't into Ibarra, I wasn't into hip hop. So I genuinely like would race home to read Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, me and my, my well, and it's kind of weird because there's this thing where if you aim high from a relatively low rent background, if you aim higher, there's this weird curse that echoes around. Uh, like this endless game of Pong and the curse or the question, sort of a weird voodoo. It's something like, uh, oh, you think you're better than us? Yeah. And it's yeah, like, it's sad, um, it's if you have to ask that question, I'm afraid yeah. I do have an answer for you, which is, I hate to say it, kind of yes. Yeah. And yeah. that is if a weird wanna, thing. You want to take away your black card. Well, if, you, if you're doing better than black people, you're no longer allowed to be black and they haven't realized how awful and what that what they're saying about black people that we can't aspire to have more we can't we can't be smarter or else we instantly become white you know there's so much see if you're in this band of intelligence community. you can't be black anymore it's yeah, like i can't yeah. imagine like a, a more racist statement foundationally to yeah. say that about all blacks or or yeah. all of any group for that matter yep. and black people are are so racist towards black people that achieve um want to achieve a little bit higher Fortunately, after middle school, a lot of those, because I just didn't have them in my classes because I just, I test out of those classes in middle school. But when I got into high school, I was really bad at math. <laughs> so I got into, I was in like a more normal math class. And I had a few of those girls were in my math class and they were like, oh, like, you know, you're really cool. Like, I'm like, yeah, no, I really just speak like this. I genuinely just speak good English. I'm not trying to act white. And then you know, it sort of changed and they all kind of became my friends. And so it was nice to see that happen over time. But it was after like so much bullying, you know, through middle school, just for being a little more intelligent. Um, but yeah, so that's something in the black community that it's it's really sad. It's it's honestly why I named my uh, blog series Myth of the Coon. It was, it was well, and it's funny too, because I mean, growing up, I went to this, I guess there were a couple of minorities, but it was mostly white boarding school when I was very young. And my abilities were recognized fairly early. And one of the things like I deeply sympathize with is I was allowed to be smart without betraying anyone or anything. You know, there, there was an undertow in general, which was more class than race, which is, you know, you come from like the single mom manners, uh, the matriarchal manners. And, and there is this undertow that kind of 
it aims to pull you back down. Like if you make it out, then maybe I could have made it out and then right, I'm going to feel right. really bad. And, and, and right. so I have to pretend that no one can make it out. So it's the crab thing, you know, to pull each other out down out of the bucket. So if I see someone getting out of this situation, by God, I've got to stop them. Now right. you can say, well, I don't want you to bump up against that privilege or, you know, you're going to, you're going to smash yourself up. But deep down, it's just because they don't want to think that they ever had the chance and they right. have to pull down people who do. So right. one of the ways in which I was allowed to be uh, skilled and, and smart and, and, you know, linguistically uh, exploratory and so on was because I wasn't betraying anyone or anything fundamentally. But of course, for other uh, ethnicities and genders and so on, there is this sense of, and what a terrible thing. You're acting white if you speak English um, yeah. in sort of the regular way. You're acting yeah. white if you study. You're acting white if you love books. You're acting white right. if you love classical music. You're, and it's like, how are all of these things just white things? I mean, yeah, I mean it's, it's sad. It's honestly, when you looking back on it and retrospectively, now that I'm able to sort of assess the implications of that, it's very sad because black people have grown to accept the fact that they can't be more, that they can't be smart, that they can't be better in so much that they've sort of woven it into our culture. If this is now a sign of true blackness, you're either with us or you're against us. They have this thing called the swap where they'll say, well, we'll take this, we'll take Eminem and you take Condoleezza Rice. I'm like, you know, like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Can I get Condoleezza Rice back? People now actively, friends that I grew up in high school, now that I'm getting a little bigger, there's a little more people are starting to talk and They'll say these things like, okay, Amarosa, like, is that supposed to be an insult? She's an accomplished black woman. It's okay, Condoleezza, is that supposed to be an insult? She's an accomplished, okay, you must be Ben Carson's daughter. Is, is that, are these insults? I don't understand. It's, it's like, it's like you're at karaoke and people are like, okay, <laughs> yeah. Freddie Mercury. It's like, yeah, uh, actually, like, uh, that's, job, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah. So, and, and that's, that's sort of, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's very, very interesting to see that that is considered an insult. These remarkably well-achieved African-Americans is considered to be an insult. So, And, and it's really tragic because to me, there, there definitely are um, barriers out there which people have to break through. And I think that they exist across all races, genders, and classes. You know, there are, there's the barrier – being a rich person, which is everyone thinks you're a douche kind of automatically, right? And, right, and you right. know, that, that you never earned anything. You never worked for everything or anything like that. And very physically attractive people get the same. You never have any problems. You never – Right, yeah. And, and I think also um, for, you know, for me at least when I was sort of breaking out of the sort of welfare home background, carving my way up. Like I, I remember when I got into the business world, I ended up at a, a country club. You know, boy, talk about the nexus. And you, you've talked about this a little bit too. Talked about the nexus of douchebaggery, the black hole of douchebaggery that's supposed to exist in the universe. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a formal meal. There's way too many utensils <laughs> and, and I don't know what to do with the finger bowl with lemon yeah. in it. Is that tea? Do I drink it? I have no idea. Do I wash in it? Do I, I don't know. And yeah. and not not knowing what to do gives you this kind of deer in the headlights thing, which does kind of mark you as not of the world and finding a way to transition to that, like being born in right. one tribe and trying to get to another tribe, so to speak. Right. It's tough. And, and it's all of these ceilings exist, but they exist out there. And I'm willing to take those on. But the first thing you have to dismantle, at least it was for me, is I had to dismantle the internal caps right. on what I thought I was able to do, the internal right. possibilities. If I'm able to expand my possibilities, then I'll run into real bigotries or prejudices out there in the world. But you have to first break through your own. My concern is that uh, in black communities, other communities, that internal um, ceiling or cap is, is so strong that it's really it limiting a huge amount of potential. Yep, it, it, that is exactly right. It is the biggest barrier facing the African-American community is the internal conflict of what it means to be black and this 
false sense of betrayal. Right. Now, you had a story too, and I hope I'm not, after saying people digging in old wounds, I hope I'm not digging in old wounds, but the story that you had about your uncle and how when he was nine, he was left by the side of the road with his five-year-old sister. Do you have any idea of the the circumstances that that led to that that terrible day? And of course, you can talk a little bit about some of the effects that had on him. Yeah. So, and listen, I wasn't there. So this is just, these are the stories. These are my mom's stories, you know, growing up with nine brothers and sisters, all kind of dispersed throughout um, the East Coast, some in group homes, some not. But uh, like I said, mental illness was something that um, they had to deal with um, growing up. And yeah, so this is a part of, I think, the African-American story. So yeah, my mom grew up in and out of group homes and was... um, had a lot of child abuse growing up and you know it I don't know I, I hate to talk about somebody else's like victim story but these stories obviously shaped me a lot when I was growing up and I always felt that I had more of an opportunity uh just my opportunities weren't great but compared to the way my parents came up and the parents before them you can, I don't you can't complain you have to do what you can do and try to create a better future for your offspring and I think that my parents did that, and it's my role to do that. Um, but yeah, so there's there's a, a lot of history and a lot of heartache on in my family's background. But I do not think of that as an excuse. I don't think that that makes me like you know. It, this is I think it's a very typical black narrative. There's a lot of that coming out of you know the '60s and yeah. And I, I, it's one of these things like if you have a family history of heart disease, you can sort of get fatalistic and you can say, well, I'm going to die of a heart attack when I'm 40, so I might as well eat foie gras day and night and never exercise because right. yeah. I'm doomed anyway. Yeah. And guess what? You know, that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or you can say, I have a family history of heart disease, so I'm going to keep my weight down. I'm going to exercise right. a lot. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to, yeah. you know, That's- and I think that seeing that kind of family history, the people who, and I, I don't mean to trivialize it or they just turn it into an excuse. It's a complex process. But the people who do sort of say, well, this is my family. I can't ever get out. Uh, it right. really does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I've just, I've always been amazed at if you keep lifting your sights, I, you know, it, it, it seems hard to find a limit. If, you, if you're willing to keep lifting your sights, uh, it, it is hard to find a limit. And I wish that there were more people out there who were just saying, to hell with history, to hell with the narrative, to hell with what everyone's telling me. I am going to accept no limits on right, what it is what I'm, I'm capable of. Preach, like people say, you lived through this, you lived through that. I'm not a victim. I hate the word victim. I, I mean, I just, people, everybody goes through something. Every single person goes through something. Like you said, it could, it could be the wealthiest person in the entire world. You don't know somebody else's demons. This is just, to me, the cards that I was handed, okay? And everybody gets handed cards for a reason. Every single thing that happened to me that seems so awful or so terrible, and that continues to happen to me, you know, it's not easy being an African-American voice and saying that I don't, I no longer subscribe to this, get out of my face with this, you know, it causes friction, it tests your relationships, and I'm fortunate that my family has been overwhelmingly supportive, but there are fan members that are not supportive with me putting out, you know, the, the things that we've, the things that we've seen, things that we grew up with. Um, that is just, like I said, if everybody could just get rid of this word victim, because the idea of victimhood is that it straps you into this sort of stale existence of misery. It's really like, who wants to be a victim? You're, you're miserable. There's no growth in being a victim. There's growth in having a past. There's growth in saying, I, I, I lived this and here's where I am today. 
There's no growth in strapping yourself inside of this like victim narrative and, and being complacent there and saying, well, my hands out because, you know, this happened to me. Um, when I was five. So uh, because I'm black and you're white and you don't know what it's like, you don't know what it was like growing up, you know, in civil rights and we have these things trickling down, I get this stuff for free. I want to earn that, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. We got the short end of the stick and there, I do very much believe, of course, there's residual effects of that. My grandfather didn't get to go to school. He was on a sharecropping farm. You know, that means, you know, what, what was my dad able to do? What does that mean? What am I able to do? Well, it's, we're two generations away from that now. Okay, we have the resources, we have the books. My mom, we had no money, but she took us to the library every single week to pick up a new book. So we have things that that are within our power um, to educate ourselves, and we have to stop, you know, crying. I just, I'm so, I'm so over the victim narrative. It's exhausting. Well, and we're all here in North America. We're all coexisting, and if yeah. there's this fundamental argument that says, "Well, I can't understand you because I don't understand the black experience," how on earth are we supposed to have conversations? How on earth yeah. are we supposed to connect? How on earth are we supposed to live together in right. any kind of peace and harmony? <laughs> if everyone's speaking Klingon and these people are speaking Elvish and these people are whatever, like, I mean, we can't have a conversation if there's this automatic barrier of you'll never know what it's like to be me. It's like, well, then right. how on earth are we supposed to get along? But that, that is the leftist storyline, right? It's this, this race towards the bottom. Like, how, I'm, I'm worse than you. I'm worse than you. I'm worse than you. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter who's had it worse because at the end of the day, you're racing to the bottom, you know? So while the rest of you guys, you know, argue about who deserves more, who had it worse, I'm going to be trying to get to the top. I'm going to try to reach a pinnacle here. And that's the only way there ever is going to be any progress by who – just think about it. Forget politics. Who wants to talk about even like their ex-boyfriend? Who, who, how has it ever brought you, you know what I mean? Like, you know, any success, you'd be like, well, I really want to dwell on this experience I had when I was 14 and this guy cheated on me for the rest of my life. It doesn't work. That's not the way we're not as humans. That's not how evolution works, you know? So it's my hope that what we're seeing now is a sort of natural filtration and this theory of Darwinism where these people are just going it, to, it's not serving them anymore to constantly be a victim. You have to survive things and you have to move on. Well, there's this funny thing, and it, it, it comes out of the left a little bit. Um, I, I think with certainly with Christians, there's much more free will and much more you have access to the soul and you have access to choices. But there's this kind of thing in the left where history just – you're like a water and you get poured into the container of history and that's your shape. It's like branded. It's stamped. It's that. That's who you are. But I mean, the science doesn't support it. We are, we are in a constant negotiation with our memories. There's no such thing as memories that are fixed and everlasting and completely determine who we are. Uh, memories, even when they're recalled, they're somewhat recreated. We are in a sure. living relationship with our history, and that gives us a lot more power to shape the future. Because if we think we're just, you know, history, we're like boulders at the top of a mountain, and history, lightning hit the boulders, we're just bouncing down the mountain, we can't really control them, we're crashing into each other, crashing into cars, right. crashing into bears. Where is the power in that? Because, you know, the left is always about empowerment and you're a victim, completely ruled yeah. by history, yeah. slavery, uh, prejudice, bigotry, yeah. segregation, Jim Crow, no chance to escape it. It's like, right, right, right. I don't the feel massively paradox. empowered at the moment. I got to be right. honest with yeah. you. Yeah, that's the great left paradox is that they, they pretend that it's empowering to be a victim and people don't realize all they're telling, selling us every single day on the news, every, anything you watch is that you are a victim and you should be offended. There is no power in being a victim, there is no power in this perpetual feeling of offense. 
Um, so I just, I don't subscribe to it. And I, I guess that's the most controversial thing I've ever done of all of the crappy things I did when I was a teenager, the craziest thing, the most controversial thing I've ever done is said, I don't subscribe to that narrative. And I kind of like white people, you know, I think they're pretty cool. <laughs> got white friends. And it's like, Oh, how could you possibly say that at a time when we have a white president? How could you possibly like a white person? How can you get along with white people? It's, it's like not allowed. Like that is really what is controversial about what I'm saying and doing is I like people. I like gay people. I like lesbian people. I like, you know, I don't have an issue with people. I don't wake up every day and fear for my life. And that is, is somehow creating an earthquake because it shatters the left narrative because they only accept me as an African American woman. If I say that I'm a victim, then they will give me a platform. Then they will hand me a megaphone. Then George Searles will write me a check. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I, I'm just, I'm not bored. I'm not built that way. So. Well, it's funny because being a victim for money is really, of course, not being a victim. It's just <laughs> using people's sympathy for victims to manipulate them into giving you resources, which is kind of like a soft predation rather than uh, actual victimhood. And it is very profitable. It's perverted. Of course. It's yeah, it's, it's very profitable. And, and this sort of follow the money stuff with victimhood is really important. When you've got, you know, both public and private agencies transferring literally hundreds of billions of dollars yep. from people who don't think they're victims to people who do think they're victims. Well, right. you know, whatever you tax, you, you get less of and whatever you subsidize, right. you get more. So if you're going to tax success and you're going to subsidize victimhood, guess you've just made a whole victimhood industry that is right. now going to tear Al down Jackson, human Jesse potential. Jackson. I mean, look at that. They, they, they are one of the, the cash cows when it comes to victimhood. Like I said, they show up. You Something happened to you. They'll show up. They don't even care about you. They never called me. They never wanted to have a follow-up call to say, hey, you know, by the way, how are you doing? It was all Or did about they ever call the media and say, well, you know, this was not very well represented and we're angry with you or – they, no, no, no. They call the media to get themselves in front of cameras to, to say that they care for black people. They do not care for black people at all. If they cared for black people, they wouldn't be only out there protesting, encouraging us. What, what do protests do but get black people arrested? What happens when a black person is arrested? People understand that even if we get another black person, they're not going to automatic president. They're not going to automatically expunge all of your records from that time you put on a mask and decided you know, to throw a bomb because Milo was speaking at Berkeley. You know, this is what they don't understand is that what you're literally doing is creating more years and more barriers for people because you cannot get a job when you have a record. You have difficulty getting into school. This is sort of the system. This is the way that they built it, you know. So for you, for this fickle moment of caring about something that the media literally brainwashed you about because you didn't conduct your own research because somebody has a different thought than you, or a different belief than you. Who cares? You know, like it doesn't really matter. And that is like the message is why it's so important to me. Like I, I need to get in front of my people. I need to get into these college campuses because that's really where the poison starts to happen is on these liberal campuses. And I need to ask them to, is this going to be worth it in 10 years? Okay. Because do you even know what you're upset about? Do you understand that you are being used? Because the Democrats are using us quite literally. And I, that's why I say it's a Democrat plantation of thoughts. We are, are our mules that just carry them up, you know, into the election every four years. And they tell us what we need to be upset about, what we need to be passionate about. And then they do absolutely nothing for us. <laughs> no. Well, the, the best, the most powerful lies are ones that contain a little bit of truth, at least for the teller. And so when the... Um this sort of paradox we talked about, like the left says, you're a victim and that's empowering. Well, of course, the victimhood is empowering for the leftist politicians because it gets them votes. And this is why right. they can use the word empowerment right. with this. It's like the way they use diversity. You know, we we love every group that votes for the left, you know, so right. uh, so they can use it. Diversity is our strength. They can say that with right. – 
with emphasis, with conviction, and they right. can say that you're empowered by listening to our narrative because diversity is the strength of the leftists right. because it sets people at war against each other and right. then they get votes. And, and this uh, whole concept uh, of um, – uh, it, it bothers me as well. Sorry, I mean just – I had another short crash into that one, so I'll just take that train, or the train will take me, depending no, on, on how it goes. But it also bothers me enormously that the left talks a lot about how rich people exploit poor people, as the smart exploit the ignorant. And you look at the people who fund these divisive groups, and this is not in black groups, all the, these, the people who fund these, like these rich guys, they don't go to jail. Think, no. think of all of the tax lawyers they have and think of all of the accountants that they have to make sure they don't put one foot outside the tax code. So they are very rich and they are not getting arrested and they fly all over the world and they cause right. trouble, but they don't get caught in no. the legal net. But then no. they have these 18-year-old kids who, you know, don't know their ass from a hole in the ground fundamentally. Yeah. They've been propagandized their whole lives. They're in an right. echo chamber and they're ginning these kids up. To do something which they would never do, which is to break the law. And then right. who pays the consequences? These guys just jet yes. off to the next conference exactly. and the kids end up with a mugshot. That, and that is what bothers me the most about it is that they are actively ruining African-American lives and African-American potential. It's the very thing that they claim to want to help. And they, they know they're doing that, you know, and, but these kids don't, like you said, and I wouldn't have known when I was like, like I said, you're in college, you have no responsibility, you don't have a mortgage. This is just like, and so you're like, what am I going to care about? And these causes caring about people, the LBGT community, they use the word diversity when really they mean separation, right? Like, this is not about diversity. This is another way that we can subdivide you because when people are divided and separated, you know, they can be controlled easier. It's, a, it's an easier way. It's a control mechanism. So yeah, it's it's sad, and it's just grown. It's just growing more and more vicious as the day goes by. As the days go by, they come up with a new group, a new you know. Now they're really tapping into the trans community right now. It's not enough just to be black. The new, I think, the new sheep are gay people, which they just keep adding a new letter on. It's like L B G T Q R S T R two D two. Like you know, and I'm like, whoa. I'm just a gay guy that wants to sleep with men, you know, now all of a sudden I have to care about whether or not a trans person who has, a, you know, mental and physical disconnect, like, how does that even work? But they just keep slapping letters, you know, because they're trying to establish this line of group things, <laughs> you know? So if you're gay, you just started here, you just like, we're attracted to men. Now all of a sudden you better be on the front lines, right? Upon a mask and throw a bomb, you know, for, you know, trans people or, or now we're seeing people that are trans abled. I mean, it's just, it's getting actually out of control. And, um, I, I personally think that they're losing, you know, despite the fact that they have won the mainstream media war, you know, that CNN and that's all you see on TV, um, the underground movement is growing and it's, it's hardly underground anymore. I mean, we're here and the more that we can diversify, actually diversify this group of people and you and I, you being white and me being black and have these conversations and we can reach more people, um, the, the quicker they die. You had a, a statement that. Gave me goosebumps. And I don't, I don't goosebump easily, Candace, but you had a statement that gave me goosebumps in one of your videos. And you said, your education wasn't free. You paid for it with your mind. Yeah. Now, and you've talked about how government education, I assume you mean government education, since that's what usually everyone means by education, how government education does tend to keep the black community uh, down. I wonder if you can help people to understand what it's like in uh, the black community and black cultures in the hood, so to speak, what it is like going to school and what kind of environment it is and how it holds people back. Absolutely. So, I mean, I guess what we're talking about, and I hate to call it education because it's just indoctrination. I mean, <laughs> right. even the way they phrase the questions, there's no critical thinking. There are the answers. I, I'll never forget, I got a, 
a critical thinking question on my test. And it was, you know, why did the U.S. have to drop the bomb in Japan? And I went to my teacher and I said, the answer is implied here. You're telling me that they had to drop the bomb, you know, on Hiroshima. You didn't ask me, you know, do I think the U.S. had to drop the bomb on Hiroshima? You're telling me essentially with this that, that we had to. And, of course, the U.S. were the heroes, were the heroes, were the heroes. We do nothing wrong. If you look since the beginning of the U.S. history, we've never done anything wrong. We were always the heroes. And I'm sure that's the same across the board in all other countries. That's how they establish a sense of nationalism. We are taught that we need to aspire to work for people, not to start our own businesses, not to invest in yourself. My personal opinion is that the reason why education is free, the public school system is free from the time that you are five until you are 17 years old is because that is when your brain is forming. That is when they can inject you six hours a day. They can just brainwash you all day with what you need to care about, what you shouldn't care about, what you believe in, what you think is history. And it just slowly strips down your self-esteem. You look at a five-year-old. Go find a five-year-old who hasn't been in school yet. The amount of confidence they have. I mean, I remember watching a Kanye interview where he's talking about like, a five-year-old doing a cartwheel. And he's like, and it was like the worst shit I've ever seen. He's like, it's the ugly thing. He's just like, ta-da. Yeah, yeah, you know? And they're like, yes, I did it. And like, wasn't it great, mom? You're kind of like, that was terrible, actually. <laughs> they got this amazing sense of who they are. Then go find a, 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 an 11-year-old. Find a kid that's, that's been, has made it to middle school and, and ask him to do anything and they're not sure of themselves anymore. So to me, the public education is this very careful, it strips down your self-esteem and it tells you what you have to believe in. And you, you know, if you don't go to college, you're not going to get a job. You're not going to do, it's this, this frantic glory of like, you must stay on this track and this wheel. And that wheel will always end you up working for somebody, working for some company that the globalists own. And it is the biggest threat to the African-American community. Um, because like I said, especially if you go into these, um, more impoverished neighborhoods, the teaching is worse. You know, there's not, there's, if I had the, um, I was fortunate enough to work for some very wealthy families. Um, after I got out of college, I worked as, um, an executive assistant, a personal assistant to some celebrities, things that those kids learn in school in these private schools that they learned, you know, $40,000 a year, you know, the difference in that education versus what I got when I was in school, it's night and day. And those kids, are, you know what they're going to do? They're going to grow up and they're going to run the world. They're going to be part of the 1% um, because that's what they are. They've afforded that. They, you, okay, you have enough money now and you're allowed to go to a private institution and you learn differently. You learn how to use your brain. You learn how to think critically. You learn how to run businesses. You know, those kids will have businesses before they're 21 years old. Um, and unfortunately, we're kind of taught to always be, like I say, we're, we're the mules of society, you know, <laughs> and that's why so many kids end up. Um, in the system, they're getting arrested, um, they're selling drugs, and it's because it's the way, from a self-esteem perspective, it's the only way they can see themselves ever getting out. Well, and we've I've talked about this in the show before, and it happened to the black community, sort of the canary in the coal mine. Now it's happening to Hispanics and it's happening to whites as well. This idea that male quality is less important when women marry the state for resources. And I think that's been a big issue. This is one of the fears of the welfare state that was pretty openly discussed back in the 1960s, that if you turn women who need resources when they've got kids, kids are like voracious black holes of, of stuff that they need to get fed and clothed and medicines and so on. And so if you then turn women away from the pursuit of male virtue, which they need for resources, a stable, good provider, a responsible right. and, and all of that, if they marry the state, then they can dabble in shallower aspects of sexual right. lust rather than using sexuality in a sense for both to snare reliable right. and moral partners. And it sounds like, I mean, your parents, you know, still together, uh, great values and no, so on. No, my parents are not still together. Oh, did they not? 
no, my parents divorced. They were they were not in a good relationship. Um, that then now they divorced after I was done with college. So it's not I, I grew up in a two parent home. You so oh, sorry. Okay, I didn't know about that. So you, yeah. you you grew up in a two parent home, which yeah, does give those resources and that kind of stability. Right. And um, the question though of where the black family has gone, where the white family is currently going, not even too far behind, right. to me is one of the most chilling things that is going on in society because the single mom stuff is is so toxic for uh, girls, which I think a lot of people understand, but yep. even more so for boys. I just signed on to do a charity for this for fathers uh, for father absence. It's funny that you say this because um, <laughs> you need to have two parents, and this is kind of what Bill Clinton was brilliant at when he completely oppressed the entire black community by locking everybody up in prison with this crime bill, which black people don't know. Black people say he's the only black president we ever had because he, you know, dapped black people up and seemed cool. Um, and what he did was he broke an entire generation of black people by sending them all to prison. You don't know what that does when you don't have two parents, when, when, uh, children grow up without a father in particular, okay, that, that role of a father, I think is so important. And, you know, feminists are shrieking somewhere. No woman can do it alone. No, we can't. We got to stop this lie. Okay. Woman, we cannot do it alone. Okay. We, you, you marry and you establish a family for a reason. You see this happening not just in humanity, but look at the animal level, okay? You need to look in to see how things are happening in the animal community. You, this whole idea of like, we're going to do it by ourselves. And like you said, relying on the system, which is, don't even get me started on welfare and Section 8 and how people are married to it and they think it's their right and they don't realize it's the very thing that's oppressing them and that will keep us constantly on this wheel. I remember um, it was a Greek mythology um, a story of King Tantalus and he gets sentenced to Haiti and they have an apple above his head and he's submerged in water and that, that's where the, the word tantalize comes from, you know, and every time he goes to bite the apple, the water comes up. That's literally what these systems are that the Democrats have built for black people, right? So, they, you know, like a second you get a, a little bit of, you know, you go to bite the apple, you're going to drown yourself and that's what Section 8, that's what welfare is and yet they will tell you that if someone tries to take that away from you, that that that's what you need to be boycotting. You need to scream out like a like an absolute crazy person and get yourself arrested because we're giving you free money. That money is not free. The education is not free. There is no such thing as free. There is always a trade off, and people that are bigger than you and smarter than you and richer than you then have already thought of that. You know, like yeah. don't overestimate yourself and think that you should. Don't think that this was not the most brilliant marketing plan since the beginning of time when they say, "Hey, we're going to give you free money." Somebody who was a lot smarter than you and paid a lot more than you thought about that. You don't take anything free, and that's how my grandpa raised me. You know, so if you're getting free money. You need to think very critically about why people are giving you that money. Well, of course, and you just have to follow the story of people who win the lottery to see right. how well that works out for some people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, right. it's it's a disaster for people. Uh, and, you know, as we know, there is this welfare cliff, right, where to get out of welfare, it's like this roach motel. To get out of welfare, you have to earn if you've got a couple of kids and, and no husband. And, of course, you're paid to have no husband. I mean, this is one of the, the – you, you, the state is actually paying husbands yeah. uh, to, to not marry, fathers to not marry. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the mothers of their children, you have to earn like, depending on where you are, like 60,000 uh, or 70,000 uh, in the free market, what's left of it in order to get the same benefits that you would as well for. And the idea that you're going to get over that hump and then end up with that independence uh, is is incomprehensible to a lot right. of people. It is a very, very uh, soft kind of uh, quicksand. Right. And, and it's also how they encourage you to have children. So you always notice that these people that are on section, they have six, seven, eight, nine, ten children because they get more money when they have children. And when their children are in their house and under age, they are able to then apply for section eight. So then you're actually creating an entire ecosystem of welfare because then your daughter turns 17. She has a child. Well, now you have how many people living here that have children and have dependents in here? It's more free money. But they don't know that that 
it's, it's, they, they haven't comprehended because you have to understand, and I don't criticize it in this regard. When you think you're surviving, they're not thinking about politics. They're not, they're, all they're knowing is that they sign up in line and they get free checks from the government. You know, and that's the extent, that's where the thought process ends. And then they look, they look up for a second and they turn on the news and the news says, Hey, that program that we're giving you that free money, um, Trump's going to take that away. You know, you better, <laughs> Oh my God. Now there are people that they don't even care about politics. They don't follow politics. They're not passionately against or for white people. But then someone tells them they're taking away because you're black and he hates you. And <laughs> now they're, you know, <laughs> because you're black and that's why, because you're black and they hate you. And now they're up in arms about it and they're screaming and they're buying this narrative that things are happening because they're black and they're not ever questioning why people want to take it away in the first place. And that is why the, to me, the number one thing that is going to get African Americans over the hump is education, is these sorts of conversations. It's not that they're never going to learn in school about what Section 8 really is. You don't learn about welfare in Section 8 in school, you know? Well, and it, it's, to me, one of the most heinous aspects is if your kid uh, ends up so maltreated that he's traumatized and acting out, why then you can put him on psychotropic drugs, get him classified <laughs> as disabled, and you, you can actually be paid for traumatizing your child to the point right. where he's got mental health issues. Right. It, it's, there's, there's so much nastiness and disgustingness on the left that it's, it's, it's hard to talk about. It's, it's, they, I just feel like they've gotten away with murder. Maybe because I woke up so late, you know, like this just happened to me. I was, I was force fed the red pill. You're in your twenties. Woke up so late. It feels so late to me. I'm just like, oh my God, how did I not know this? Like I haven't done enough. I can't do enough now to wake up black people. Uh, you know, and I'm happy to die. I'm a sore thousand times. Call me a coon. Call me Auntie Tom. Buy me a necklace that says it. I'm not going to shut up because this stuff is devastating our community. And we are voting for the people that are enslaving us, actively enslaving us. And we're terrified of people that are suggesting, okay, for merely suggesting that we might be smart enough to do it on our own. That we <laughs> might be able, you know, to, to go to school based on our own merit without extra help, to, to not have to take handouts, for suggesting that we are offended. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. No, for me as a whole, I mean, putting out proposals that I absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt would enormously benefit the black community. You get told, called terrible words and oh, I'm yeah. apparently a racist. You're, so, you're you know, this is just the way this is just the way it goes. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're the, no good deed goes all unpunished uh, in the yeah. world. So let's let's end up and I really, really appreciate this chat. Um, but um, let's end up with um, some of the biggest red pills. I've mentioned it on the show a couple of times before, but you've got a really, really great, great way of, of zeroing in on it, Candace. One of the red pills is um, uh, Republicans be racist, you know, and 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 uh, the Democrats are just, you know, um, wonderful and, and into egalitarianism and so on. And they're there to defend you from the Republicans who, who freed the slaves. So right. um, what, what are the couple of, <laughs> a couple of the that. things that um, I just one of the great phrases on the Internet is Democrats haven't been this mad since the Republicans freed their slaves. <laughs> but what are some of the things that you'd like people to understand, uh, not just for blacks, but all communities about some of the history of the relationships between the black community and the Democrats historically? Right. Um, so I, I definitely have touched upon this in a video, but just understanding that every time that black people have ever gotten um, a little further ahead legislatively, they should understand that Republicans were behind that. And every time that, um, you know, they, people don't know the KKK, that's a Democrat thing. And so it's so funny to hear them keep calling, you know, oh, Trump supporters are the KKK, Republicans are the KKK. They don't, they don't know their own history. That's, that's a huge thing because we don't learn it. We don't learn it that way in school. You know, you, you every time you learn a story about being black and being freed, 
we learned that the Democrats freed us. That is, that's kind of the way it's being presented to us. Those are the answers that we're supposed to give. So again, that's a part of the mass brainwashing. Um, I want them to know, I guess, primarily that it's all on the internet. You need, but, uh, change the way that you're searching for things and, and search for what Democrats have done bad, you know, to black people. And it pulls it all up. It's all, it's written by black people. Black people are spelling it out. There are so many voices like mine that are on the internet. Um, well-accomplished psychologists and professors and sort of these African heroes that have been trying to tell all of us what's been really going on and that we've been duped time and time again to believe that the Democrats are our saviors when in reality they are our oppressors. And as I've said, and I, I, I want to make it very clear because uh, people, I get this question a lot, is why are you supporting Republicans? I'm not supporting Republicans. I'm actively attacking the Democratic Party because they are the ones that have our minds enslaved right now. Okay, we, we They have bought it and we've been um, buying their lies for so long that they're my enemy right now because I understand what they are doing. And I understand what their plan is and how they are trying to manipulate the masses. And um, in that sense, I've joined up forces with, I think, uh, Republicans and white people that are tired of um, bearing the brunt of a lie. <laughs> are tired of being called the racist when in fact the Democrats are the racist. And so it's sort of this sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> um, but I, I encourage independent thinking. I, I don't want anyone to be left or right. I want them to be, I want them to be smart and I want them to be well-equipped and I want them to be educated so that when they do cast a ballot um, and, or they don't cast a ballot, it's not because of a narrative that was created by the media, which is owned by globalists. Well, and slavery was a government program. And yep. segregation was a government program. And, and Civil War was about freeing the slaves. That's another thing. That's, we're taught that in school. Civil War was not about freeing the slaves. This was, it was a stupid byproduct of like, we want to control the nation, similar to now. And uh, how are we going to do it? Well, let's get these slaves to raise up against their owners. They, people, they need to understand this, that the way we learned our history is a massive lie. Well, I mean, America was the only country that had to kill over 600,000 people to free their slaves. I mean, every other country right. was able to do it without a civil war. What's the difference? Well, federal right. government wanted power and yeah. there was a tyrant in the White House with a cool beard. But um, right. so, yeah, I really want just as a whole people to understand that if you look at the dysfunctions of history, I mean, the first place you want to look at is government power. The first place you want to look at is government programs. Once you understand that most of the horrible iniquities in history are the result of an overreach of government power and that all of these terrible things result from government programs of one kind or another, like the immigration that's driving down wages for black families. This is a government program. Right. It's not open borders. It's well-funded immigration. I mean, it's well-funded right. uh, border relaxation of controls for cheap labor and leftist votes. Right. And so once you get that all of these horrible things in history are government programs, you might just not be quite as tempted the next time someone comes along and says, I know how to make your life better, a government program. You're yeah. like, no, 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 I've, yeah. I've seen that. I've seen how that movie ends. Thank you right. very much. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it, again, it starts with education. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that um, I can do a lot of it leading up to 2020 for the African-American community. I'm just, I think it's time for us to stop being government slaves. Well, I appreciate that very powerful ending. Uh, Candace Owens, uh, C-A-N-D-A-C-E uh, Owens. Um, and uh, you can, of course, search for Red Pill Black, twitter.com forward slash Red Pill Black, facebook.com slash Red Pill Black, and the same on Instagram. Candace, a great pleasure to chat with you today. All the very best with your upcoming speeches. It's and I so hope we grateful. get to talk again. Thank you so much, Stefan. It's such, such a pleasure.